0: one of the things mankind needs most is something we've gone to extraordinary lengths to explain away. Today, let's invite altruism back to reality.
1: Welcome to Coffee with Kramer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Kramer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place.
0: On a previous episode, uh, a few months ago, around thirty nine, uh, a show called F- Control Freaks, I think was the name that we gave it. Uh, I mentioned that w- what we often end up producing are the very things that we're trying to avoid. And uh, not doing that is a real challenge. and it came and it came up again uh, even more recently. Um, and what I what I said at the end of that first show that I was talking about the Control Freaks show, Uh, is that there are three antidotes to living a life where you end up producing all the stuff you're trying to avoid. Because most people do that. It's just, it's how we live. And and I've seen it in so many different cases and contexts. It, It has become sort of the fabric for how I understand how people live their lives. Anyway, the three antidotes that I recommended for combating this tendency to produce the things we're trying to avoid were faith, sacrifice, and altruism. Faith, I mentioned as an antidote, because the structures of life reinforce familiarity. Uh, so that even if we're playing a different role in the new setting where we find ourselves, we repeat the scenes that we've, well, seen, <laughs> that, you know, but scenes with a C first. So we repeat the scenes that we've seen in the way we live out our lives. And that's what I that's what I was talking about in the very previous episode to this one. In episode 59, the skeletons in the living room, the structures of our life that we just reinforce and faith is an avenue out of that, out of just reinforcing those structures. It allows us to invite into our lives a supernatural influence, which matters that it's supernatural, but it also gives us a perspective on, on things that steps outside of the scaffolding that sort of holds us where we are. So faith is one antidote. Sacrifice, another antidote I brought up, because uh, our desire to come out on top to win, to compete and overcome, you know our desire to come out on top contradicts the calling that we have, and I'm saying this to believers, and as a believer myself, it contradicts the calling we have. Believers, by the way, are people who have faith. That's the first term that I gave. So sacrifice we have to have because our desire to come out on top contradicts the calling that we have as little messiahs in a fallen world. Our calling as messiahs is to give something up. For the sake of other people, and that contradicts the nature of our lives to live within the structure that otherwise governs pretty much every decision we make selfishly. And then the third uh, item in this antidote that I had brought up was altruism for the obvious reason that follows on faith and sacrifice, and partially I'm saying altruism because love is the great commandment, and by the way, I'm gonna pause for a second and say, I, when I say altruism, most people think of just giving, you know, benevolence of some kind. So I'm gonna give some money, and uh, he's, you know, this this person's altruistic, meaning they give cash to museums, or uh, they donate time, volunteer time, to some organization or something like that. I, I don't just mean perfunctory altruism like that, and I, and I don't mean to insult those acts, so not at all. They're incredibly generous, and beneficial to society, our communities, to to other people, they're valuable beyond what I can communicate here, so I, I don't mean to diminish their value, but that's not the sum total of what altruism is, it's a much broader category than that, so as I say altruism here, don't just think benevolent giving to causes or something like that, even though that's really valuable, Altruism is the third part of this antidote to living lives in a rut where we're just producing the stuff we really wanted to get out of to begin with. Altruism is the third part of that antidote because love is the great commandment. And a willingness to put the interest of others above self is prerequisite. And that's, by the way, a definition of love and of altruism together. That's why I'm associating the two. The willingness to put the interest of others above self is prerequisite to a faith that can overcome the natural boundaries of our behavior. Because, you know, when we're putting ourselves first, we just crawl right back in the beanbag we were in before, the structure that we were in before. And it's prerequisite, uh, but also the sacrifice that would carry faith to its end. So, altruism, I'm saying, is a third part of this antidote. In the sense that a willingness to put the interest of others above self, which is altruism by definition, is what you have to have in order to obtain a faith that can overcome the natural boundaries of our behavior and the sacrifice that would carry faith to its ultimate end, which is giving yourself to someone else consummately. And so uh, so, so, what I want to do is invite altruism back into reality, which also means I want to clarify why altruism is so often excluded from our way of understanding reality. And even though there is, I wouldn't say it's a heavy dose of philosophy, but I think people who may not thrive on it like I do might think it's a heavy dose of philosophy. Even though it will sound like there's a fairly heavy dose of philosophy in what I'm about to to describe, there is a very practical outcome, an everyday outcome, in whether we see the world as potentially having real altruism in it or not. So as, uh, as ethereal as the conversation might sound, I, I wanna urge you to understand or at least to accept the possibility that there's a very concrete application to what I'm talking about. And so the first step in inviting altruism back into reality is to understand why it was pushed out of reality, uh, why we don't think of it as a real option very often, and so this uh, amounts to talking about the problems that face altruism in our way of seeing the world, and uh, ultimately that problem is reductionism. It's called reductionism, and, and I know not everybody uses the word reductionism, but it but it's an important concept, and and a lot of us swim in a vat of reductionism, even if we don't recognize we're doing it. And yeah, it's a vat. It's not a pool. Pools are pleasant. Reductionism is a vat. You want out if you realize you're in it. Anyway, reductionism is this. It's eliminating, and this is not a definition I looked up, this is just my explanation for you, eliminating supernatural or immaterial ideas. So you get this idea? So you have some concept that's above nature, some concept, even an immaterial concept like love, Uh, would be something that a lot of people would eliminate in reductionism. Okay, so here's, here's the idea of reductionism. Eliminating supernatural or immaterial ideas, ideas that don't have material form. They don't take up space, not like a TV screen, right? So eliminating supernatural or immaterial ideas by explaining how natural or material matter, things, account for everything that, made us believe those supernatural or immaterial things existed. Okay, I know that that sounds weird, like a weird definition, but hang with me for a second. I'll give you an example. You'll understand what I mean. (laughs) I'm not commanding you to understand it. I'm saying I I think you'll understand what I mean when I say this. So here's an example. I said a minute ago, eliminating supernatural or immaterial things by explaining them away, explaining how natural or material things account for all the things that made us believe that that immaterial thing or supernatural thing existed. So an example would be love. We eliminate a reductionist would eliminate love by explaining how evolutionary or biological traits associated with producing and protecting progeny in other words, with reproduction, account for the atavistic and effectively irrational impulses we usually think of en masse, in mass as love, right? So I, oh, he's in love. No, no, he just found some biological receptacle so that he could reproduce. Now I know how ugh, ugh, off-putting that last statement I made is, but it, but it really is what a lot of people do with the concept of love. Well, I mean, you feel that, but it's really just evolutionary history pushing you to make another little you to get into the world, because your genes, through evolution, want to survive in one way or another, and this is how you make them survive. Uh, Or, on the other side, you want an ongoing relationship, because that ongoing relationship protects the progeny that you produced, where your genes are going to be preserved, and so on. That is a reductionist view of love. So, and, and a lot of people like to defend the idea of love because, you know, we've never experienced anything more meaningful or weighty in our lives than a sense of love. You know, the, the emotion, the feeling, the, the fullness that comes with the concept of love. And so when somebody practices reduction on, uh, reductionism on us with the concept of love, we're like personally offended. And so we want to defend it. And I'm, and I'm bringing it up to you for that reason work with me to preserve space for something that goes beyond a material or natural explanation. Not love today, but a a specific concept that has to be associated with love ultimately, which is altruism. That's what I want to come to. And so the reduction of altruism out of reality so that you would say, well, I mean, you you say it's love, but it's not really love, it's just biology. In the same way, people people will say, well, you say he's altruistic, you say she's doing things just for the sake of other people, but in reality, it's self-serving in some way or another. The reduction of altruism is always to some kind of egoism. Now, an egoism is more than a fancy way of saying selfishness. Uh, selfishness has a pettiness to it in the way we use the word egoism is sort of selfishness but without the pettiness it can be petty but it can also be just a way of understanding you do the things that are interesting to you and that's and that's okay you know that we do that like when you eat you, you generally don't say oh what a selfish pig he's eating lunch Uh, I mean, you could, (laughs) depending on how they're eating the lunch and which lunch they're eating. But generally, you would just say, oh, well, he's got to eat lunch. He's hungry. That's egoism. Egoism is that part of you that does have to do the stuff that is interesting to you or important to you for some reason. So it's not petty like selfishness. But what happens with altruism, the belief that you can do things purely for the sake of others, even to to the loss of yourself, the the reduction of altruism out of reality where you say nothing is actually altruistic is almost always to some kind of egoism or another but it is a reduction to egoism in some way or another so uh, you know a couple of examples of that where it actually shows up are um evolutionary genetics for instance so the idea Um, which uh, there's a a guy named George Price who advocated this, and I I haven't followed up much with it, and I'll talk more about it later on. But, uh, you know, the idea is that what's built into your genes is a desire to preserve the genes within your tribe, family, within those who are similar to you. And so the things that look altruistic to you are really just things that are designed into you through the history of evolutionary biology in order to preserve a certain set of genes that are in this family uh, that you're in, so your tribal interests, which uh, they believe is reflected, people who hold this view of of a reduction of altruism to egoism through evolutionary genetics— you know, they would say it's why you're more altruistic to people who are closer to you. So you're more altruistic to your spouse or to your offspring, to your children, or maybe to your cousins, and it just diminishes the further you get from uh, the gene pool that's most identical to your gene pool and so on. So altruism becomes just this artifact of evolution. Or, uh, and before that one, more historically, back in the 18th century, Uh, the common way of reducing altruism to egoism, eliminating altruism from reality, in other words, uh, was to blame it on the internalizing of cultural norms. So you grow up as uh, a person who's entirely selfish, little babies, two-year-olds, they are completely selfish. Uh, And I say that belligerently as a grandparent and a parent who... Still loves my children and my grandchildren, but I mean, for crying out loud, a two year old, and literally for crying out loud. A two year old is a pretty selfish little instantiation of humanity. Uh, Anyway, the point is that there is a point where that child realizes that telling the truth instead of lying, giving a toy to someone else instead of taking it from them is actually to their advantage because then they don't get spanked or lectured by their parent or they get a new toy later on or whatever it is. And as you internalize these things over time, you begin to realize that living in a society ultimately where people keep promises when they don't even want to is actually better than living in a society that doesn't. And so what looks like an entirely selfless act actually becomes a selfish act. It's you living in the kind of culture that you want to live in. You get the idea of internalizing cultural norms can make you feel like you're being selfless when in reality, you're just doing the things that your parents taught you to do by slapping you on the back of the head when you did the other things when you were a kid. So altruism, in that case, I'm not advocating slapping your kid on the back of the head. I'm talking about what other people have encountered. I think that's a terrible idea. Don't do that. Uh, Altruism ends up being, in that world, nothing more than a rhetorical, in other words, diction, a rhetorical or cultural cloak for biological or psychological egoism or even selfishness, you know. The old version of that was Thomas Hobbes and Psychological Egoism. I've mentioned it before, not going to go through it again right now. I will talk about it a little more later in the episode because uh, we need a little context to understand the remedy to this uh, and what real altruism would be, so we'll come back to that in a moment. The newer version, as I was mentioning a moment ago, is genetics, especially in the price model of evolution, which you can go look up. Uh, if you get an opportunity to do it, I encourage you to do it. I, I'm, I'm learning a lot about that right now, so it's partially interesting to me for that reason. Anyway, that, those that, that part of the conversation, those things that I just listed are the problems that are facing altruism. There are more, but those are the big ones. But the other thing we need to consider is the reason altruism is so important. And I can't overstate this, uh, and I mean it literally, I can't overstate how important altruism is to Christianity, to what it means to be a person who can live out Christian values. For those of you who are believers and, and listen to some of these episodes, this is automatic to me. But even if you're not a believer, just to grasp some of the the basic, the foundational morals and values that Christianity espouses and that create a society in which we can live, make altruism essential. Uh, we can't be without it. So biblically, I would say it this way, in, and I just mean in a short version, not, not doing a full exposition, but in a full exposition, it's even more compelling. It's really hard to make sense of a couple of concepts without genuine altruism. In Scripture, I'm talking about a couple of concepts in Scripture. Uh, One example is in the garden. You know, in Matthew 26, as the example, uh, in the 39th verse of Matthew 26, it goes this way. Jesus is in the garden. He's, He's preparing for his crucifixion. He's just had the last supper with the disciples. And, And he went and he takes the the closest disciples that he has and he leaves them and then he goes off by himself. And it says, he went a little further and fell on his face and he prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And it's a very direct renunciation of his own will in obedience to the interest not only of his father, but of the others who will benefit from the act, as we know from the rest of the prayer, and from his desire to obey his father. That by itself is enough to explain that there is in Jesus, in the garden, altruism, which you can say, well, that's Jesus. I mean, he's able to do stuff we're not able to do. Well, he is fully man in this process, God and man, but fully man. And he has told his disciples explicitly that if they want to be followers of his, they have to mimic this choice. If you would be my disciples, then you have to deny yourself. And literally, he points to this episode by saying, and take up your cross which is the act of denying yourself. It's not nailing yourself to a cross liturgically or symbolically. It's literally choosing to give up your life for the benefit of people who are willing to reject you. And he says, unless you're willing to do that, you're not gonna be my disciple. So altruism is built into the concepts that undergird the whole nature of Christianity. And there is, by the way, there is a side, this, altruism is important for another reason. This is a side benefit. I, I'm not saying that this one is necessary. I'm just saying it, it just happens to ride along as a really pleasant sidecar on this motorcycle. And that is that genuine altruism, the idea that altruism exists in itself, not as a side effect of egoism in some complex form, but all by itself, genuine altruism creates a serious problem for naturalism. Which is why the evolutionary biological explanation is so important in this process because when you're looking for a naturalistic explanation, whether it's psychological or biological, you are looking for something that inherently excludes the possibility of something like real altruism. where it's And, and I will say, I mean, I know some theorists who work on this, on altruism, from a naturalistic perspective. It's not impossible to conceive of altruism in a world that's naturalistic, in a a way you could think of the world naturalistically, but it's really close. And nobody is in agreement that there is an explanation of altruism. There are plenty of people who have theories about how to try to bring that out, but there's no good theory resolving how altruism could exist in a naturalistic world where there's nothing supernatural going on. It's a really hard concept to grasp. So for those of us who embrace it as Christians, it's like, yeah, well, I mean, here it is, and and this is the form it takes, and you have a really hard time explaining away some of these things about altruism that make it what it is, and they create this wedge into the really otherwise stiff world of naturalism, and they sort of force in this supernatural element that says, hey, I'm here. You, You may like me or not, but I'm here. Altruism is here. and and it really does happen, and it compels you to see the world differently than the way naturalism and materialism invite us to see the world. I I like that as a side effect. That doesn't make altruism true. It just makes it really attractive uh, for a different reason. So there's part of the reason that altruism is important. Talking about, and I mean by that ultimately, simply because it's so essential to some of the concepts that appear to be at the core of scripture itself. So for that reason, it's important. So what I want to do is just back up for a second and go back to the hurdle that altruism faces in our culture, because I'd mentioned it has some problems, you know, that we want to reduce it down to, you know, nothing more than a form of egoism. And I, so so let me, let, me, let me bring this up. This is a significant hurdle for altruism, the idea that in our own altruism, our own expressions of kindness to other people, uh, acts of sacrifice for someone else's benefit, you know, whatever it is that we do, the idea, this and this is a huge hurdle for altruism to overcome for us, the idea that in our own altruism, there's buried this favoritism to keep our ideals, our genes, or our values in the gene pool or in the culture through someone like us that is uh, and and the more they're like us the the better for us this is the idea of the of the price formula that i talked about a moment ago george price had formulated you know an evolutionary theory how uh, altruistic genes could be pa- apparently altruistic genes could be passed down from one generation to the next and you do see practices that appear altruistic in all kinds of species. So elephants defending the weak who are among them, things like that. I mean, these things happen all the time. Uh, And and different, different populations of animals, doesn't matter. And so we see it among us also. So evolutionists do want to be able to explain that away because, you know, altruism as a moral characteristic or some, you know, supernatural appearance of kindness in the world, you know, that, 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 That doesn't make sense in terms of the survival of the fittest, which inherently means, you know, you're not dying to give away your spot in the gene pool so that somebody weaker than you could survive and fill out the gene pool. That undermines the whole nature of evolution. So in the explanation of the price uh, formula, you're, you're creating a way to understand how those pools of genes could be passed down. So the hurdle that real altruism has to overcome are those explanations that tie our defense or or our altruistic acts to our familiarity with the people that we're giving ourselves to. So in other words, a spouse being willing to die for uh, his pregnant partner, you know, Uh, or a a, a parent dying for their child, or even, and this is a little more remote, but it's still there in the gene pool uh, argument, a cousin, dying for a cousin. Oh, no, I'm not going to let them suffer, so I'll jump in front of the bullet for them, you know, something like that. Those explanations are at the core of this sort of evolutionary explaining away of, and I'm not making evolution the enemy here. I don't care what you think about that issue. We can talk about that another day. That's a different discussion. It's the naturalism that I'm trying to address here, not, not the particular form or theory that it takes. Trying to explain it away that way doesn't work for addressing real altruism. And I, and I don't mean real in a trite or, or a trivial way. I mean real as in altruism itself exists as a thing that can be expressed in, in the choices that we make, the decisions that we make. And the Christian form of altruism can't be explained away. Now, again, whether it's actually practiced or not is a different question here, and we'll talk about that. But. But the Christian form that altruism is supposed to take and the form that it does take in the New Testament and the form which I will argue it constantly takes in the lives of believers that I know, uh, does it can't be explained away by familiarity, by the proximity, by filial obligations or uh, family, familial obligations. And it's for the very reason that's given to us in Romans 5 and so I, for instance, this, this passage is the one that comes to mind because I was in a chapel recently for Criswell College where I serve as the president, and we had a professor who was speaking in chapel, uh, a, a theological discussion. He's a, a professor of theology. Uh, Dr. Ty Kieser is his name, and he brought up Romans 5.8, and he talked about that passage in the chapel uh, s- service that we had. The passage itself is an a fortiori argument He he actually mentioned that it has uh, an argument in it that has a particular Latin name and stuff, and then he didn't talk about it. And as a professor who teaches logic, I I was just like, "Come on, talk about talk about the form of the argument." Anyway, I'm not even going to talk about the details of it, but you'll hear it here. It's an argument uh, from a weaker to a stronger position, and it says, "When we were still, when we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly." That's the opening line of this line of argumentation. And then he says, for scarcely, barely would anybody do this. Hardly anybody would do this. For scarcely, for a righteous man, one will die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Now, that may not sound like the same thing I was talking about, favoring genes that are similar to ours, but People who have similar values to ours live in a similar manner to us or people we're willing to give ourselves for because it conveys cultural memes or genes down the line. So we would have the same tendency. It's familiarity. It's similarity that promotes this action uh, for a naturalist to explain it away. And the whole point here for Paul is to say, but that doesn't explain at all what God did. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but perhaps... For a good man, someone would dare to die. That's a verse about altruism, by the way. The next verse is more so, verse eight, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why on earth would you give it up for that? you are giving a you're laying down your life this is why nietzsche is so uh despite one of the reasons nietzsche is so despising of the christian ethic because the stronger is laying down his life for the weaker it's the worst possible thing for the progression toward the superman that we're supposed to become in our development as a species and so on but this is the point and even the fact and if you say but that's god that's not that's not people but that's the point that what he does, we are supposed to imitate in Christianity. That's the point for us, that we become people who, and this is what the book of Acts does, Peter and then Paul become these replicators of everything that Christ did, including the cost to their own freedom and their own lives. And so anyway, so to pause here and say something else theoretical though at the underlying here is that God himself being altruistic is evidence of the reality of altruism as something that exists in and of itself. God's altruism, his action on our part, the stories that we know of what he did to redeem us, the Gospels, his altruism, he acts irrationally. It doesn't make sense rationally for him to choose these creatures who have already disobeyed him, who are devouring one another in the world. It is an irrational act on his part to care about us. It is inherently unselfish. The act is described as a sacrifice of unselfishness on his part. He doesn't say, I really don't like these people, but I like myself so much, I'm going to die for them so that they can then exalt me to make me important. That's, so far removed from from what scripture actually teaches about what Christ is doing and what God is doing and how he treasures us and values us for no reason of our own merit. That's from Israel forward. Deuteronomy 7 describing it about Israel in the New Testament, a plethora of passages quoting even the Psalms or the prophets about how unmeritorious we are. And yet he Chooses freely to care about us and then to lay down the life of his own son, who there is no possible calculus where we could arrive at saying, but, you know, when you take all of us together and then you compare us to Jesus, we look pretty good. No, there's no possible way you can put us on any objective scale and say, God looked at his son, the father looked at his son, Jesus, looked at us and said, "Eh, you know, ultimately I think I might get a better deal out of this. There's no exchange where it makes sense for him to have done this except where he just cared for an other. And that's what he did, altruism. Ultimately, his act of genuine, real love is an act of real altruism, for us he simply chooses to love us and to give the greatest sacrifice imaginable in order to save us so so let me add to this what real altruism would look like for us so for you know first in a theoretical sense let's talk about it for a minute so this is the the sort of more philosophical side to it right in a theoretical sense t- you know t- th- and this is where i need to t- explain just briefly <laughs> this is me telling myself to be brief Thomas Hobbes's psychological egoism. So Thomas Hobbes, you know, early Enlightenment philosopher, thinker, empiricist, whatever. Uh, and you know, ultimately, it comes down to this for Thomas Hobbes: his psychological egoism, which means this. A psychological egoism means not that you ought to be selfish. Psychological egoism means you can't help but be selfish. You you will always do what you want to do because that's the only thing you have designed into you. You have a a, a mind that makes choices to avoid pain. And to pursue pleasure. And because of that, you're always going to make choices that produce the most pleasure, even if in a complex way they bring pain along the way. The pleasure that you got from it was worth more than the pain, or you wouldn't have chosen to do it, right? That's Thomas Hobbes' view. So ultimately, for him, what appear to be selfless acts, like, as I was giving you the example earlier, keeping promises to your own hurt, to use the biblical language, but that's the ultimate thing. That's the ultimate way of saying you do what's self-sacrificing. You keep your promises even when it brings harm to you. So to, to, so to Thomas Hobbes, ultimately, what appear to be selfless acts, a person keeping a promise when it's to their own hurt, those acts are really just internalized norms for a society we've learned to know is better for us than the one where people don't do that. So ultimately, you've just internalized the norms of society that allow you to find more pleasure in living in a society where people like you keep promises even when they're to your disadvantage. So it looks like you're being altruistic by keeping this promise you don't want to keep or taking care of a person you don't want to take care of. But in reality, it's still willed by you to do it, which proves it's still done in your self-interest. Otherwise, you wouldn't will it, right? That's, That's psychological egoism. That's Thomas Hobbes. That's his explanation. So my hero in response to that... This is me describing in a theoretical sense why there's room for altruism and what it would look like for us. And in a very practical sense, Joseph Butler, my philosophical hero, Joseph Butler, who was a a preacher, by the way, he's just so ideal, isn't he? A preacher, a philosopher, what a guy. Anyway, (laughs) Joseph Butler's, uh, you know, what he does is respond to Thomas Hobbes uh, 50, 75 years later providing room for altruism, and maybe it's 100 years later actually, providing room for real altruism in a theoretical sense to say, no, 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 you can't explain away everything in that way. And his response to psychological egoism takes this form. So, you know, human motivation for Butler is not as simple as, as pleasure. You just have pleasure and pain, and that's all there is. Instead, he says we're made with two elements in our nature. And, and by the way, I agree with him for cultural and historical reasons, not just I like his theory better, uh, because he takes into account both our individualistic nature, which Thomas Hobbes was almost entirely focused on, but also our communitarian nature, which is built into us even when we try to ignore it. And so the altruistic side of this, I think, is our communitarian nature. By the way, that's me, not Joseph Butler. Going back to Joseph Butler, he says, you know, human motivation, which is desire, our desire, has actually two elements built into it. One, egoistic pleasure, self-interest, self-affection. I'm interested in the things that are valuable to me. This doesn't mean, again, piggish self-interest. I can be self-interested in just eating and not starving to death or being healthy instead of unhealthy or whatever. But self-interest, self-affection are the things that are associated with pleasure, and egoism, but altruism is also built into my nature as a human being. And of course, he believes given to us by our creator. He's he's a believer, just like I am. His not just like I am. He's a lot smarter. But whatever. He's not around, so you know I can say this anyway. But altruism is the other half, and that, in contrast to egoism, self-interest, self-affection, this altruism is about benevolence. And social affection. I, I have a natural affinity to others, uh, to serve others, to be with others, to care about others. And not, you know, just intuitively, that seems true to me and obvious to me, and not something that can be reduced to the egoistic impulses that are there. And there are individual stories that we can tell that sort of get to this point, but I'll get to those in a moment. Just, just on the theory here, for Joseph Butler, It ultimately comes down to saying there is a difference where, you know, where we're explaining away altruism or any possibility of altruism by saying no, because, I mean, you can only choose the things you choose. And the fact that you choose it means you desire it. If you didn't desire it, you wouldn't have chosen it. And the fact that you desire it makes it selfish, even if it involves helping another person. It's because you felt good about helping another person, blah, blah, blah. And he says, no, that's not true, because there is a distinction that can be made between desire and pleasure. Pleasure is one kind of desire, so that all, all desire might even have pleasure present in it. But not all desire is pleasure, which is why that benevolent affection or social affection is an important category of desire to recognize, so that pleasure is a distinct thing from that where pleasure can be a necessary cause of our action, it's always present, it's always pushing in us, and we always have to have some kind of satisfaction from having given ourselves to another, or something like that, that may be true, that doesn't make it a sufficient cause of that behavior. There has to be something else there which makes us actually care about the other person, not just that we get pleasure from caring about the other person, but that we have a separate altruistic impulse inside of us saying, help them, do something for them. And then what he says comprises all of human nature comes down to these four different things that are working in us. The first one, at a root level, passions and affections, you know, the stuff that makes us wanna eat and reproduce, that kind of stuff. But then the next two, both of which are rational, one egoistic, one altruistic, put in check those passions. So the fact that I wanna be healthy tells me, even though my passions are saying, eat a gallon of Bluebell before you go to bed, and they do every night, they say that. My my egoistic re- reason, my rational egoism says, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, you'll regret it in the morning, you'll regret it every day you step on the scale, don't do it, and so I don't do it. That's egoistic, but it's rational. But also my rational altruism, can put in check my passions and affections. Where my concern for another person makes me say, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna use a straw, I don't do this, by the way, you can do this, I think it's fine, but I it could make me say, my rational altruism could make me say, I, I'm not gonna drink from a plastic straw because I care about turtles, <laughs> right? So I know, turtles are not the actual altar that we're talking about, the other that we're talking about. But as an example, my reason could make me turn down a, a passion or an affection that I have because of my interest in others. This is, I'm giving you what Joseph Butler describes. But then he has this final ingredient in human nature that's central to our moral decisions, and that's conscience. And so what conscience does, this last ingredient uh, in human nature, is choose between my rational altruism and my rational egoism, especially Uh, and overcome my passions and affections. And so as a being with a conscience given by God, I have this ability to act literally selflessly, uh, altruistically for no benefit to myself because it's part of the nature that God put into me to be altruistic. That's how Joseph Butler sort of sees the world. And I, I love seeing it that way. I love having that as a reality. There is an important distinction though and most often, uh, when I hear people discuss altruism, they and and I am just pausing here on the theoretical side to say this, but in practical terms, this is important too. Most often, when I hear people discuss altruism, they elide the difference between altruistic and supererogatory acts. I know nobody uses the word supererogatory, um, but it you know I've used it a few times in a few episodes before this, and uh, hopefully it'll make sense to you. That supererogatory acts are heroic acts. They're acts that go above and beyond what you could ask a person to do, right? So, like an inter, in, inter uh, an interrogatory is a question when you ask somebody a question. A supererogatory is when you ask somebody to go beyond what you can ask them, right? So, jump in that freezing lake and save this person is more than you can ask a person to do, and yet a hero will do it. They'll jump in. So, heroic acts are supererogatory acts. We actually have a tendency to equate altruistic acts in this sense, in this philosophical sense I'm talking about, with super acts, with heroic acts, and that's a mistake. Uh, I listened recently, uh, not to the whole thing, but I listened to portions of a Radiolab episode, you know, that NPR does or wh- whoever it is that puts that. I think it's NPR that puts it out, but it was from Twelve years ago, a dozen years ago, December Fourteenth, Twenty Ten, precisely called the Good Show. You can Google the Good Show Radio Lab, and this show, this episode will come up, and it speaks about um, the the fellow that I was mentioning before, George Price, who came up with the theory and some of the altruistic things that he did in his life to try to counter that theory because he didn't like the implications that came from it, the self sacrifices that he made with homeless people and stuff like that. Then you can hear sort of the end of his story, but they go through. Uh, A few events that uh, people have talked about over the last few years uh, where people made self-sacrifices for the benefit of others that didn't make any sense, uh, that you really just can't find any uh, naturalistic way of explaining why they were done, and it's worth hearing just for that reason. That's And that's worthwhile. Most of those acts were heroic, not all of them, but most of them were something we would consider just goes beyond what you could ask a person to do. And that is altruistic. It's a beautiful example of altruism, makes me cry when I hear of people making sacrifices like that. Love it, absolutely love it. But the altruism into which believers are invited and which I'm advocating for today is quotidian. You know, it is, um, um, and uh, for people, uh, so I know people don't use that word every day either, uh, work a day, you know it's it's mundane, uh, it's every day. Um, so, for instance, a young woman choosing to give up a comfort, and I heard this story just recently uh, on Wednesday nights. We were covering missionaries in our church, and you know, a young woman giving up a comfortable life to serve people on the other side of the world, and not for the gratitude. Um, that that type of sacrifice isn't. Heroic, that sacrifice is just obedience to what God calls us to do as believers. So that's why I'm saying the, the altruism that believers are invited into is something we're supposed to do every day. The expression I use to describe the scriptures' messianic roles is this the messiah is always and this is true with joseph it's true with moses it's you know it's true throughout the old testament and messianic figures the messiah is always someone willing to lay down their life for the sake of the very people who will likely trample over it on their way to finding god that's the nature of what it is to be like christ to be the messiah in scripture and it but it doesn't even have to be that dramatic you know, when a mother gives up her independence to serve her children, when an employer gives up security or prosperity to serve her employees, when a, when a minister gives up a position or a level of success that they could have gone on to in order to speak truth to people that they need to hear rather than speaking to them what they want to hear, those are people who are practicing selfless altruism. They're caring about others, whatever form that takes. So, in the theoretical sense, I'm saying to you, even when we're describing the selflessness, let's not just make it the huge heroic acts that people point out and say, wow, can you believe that? But also remember that in our daily decision-making, in the mundane decisions that we make, we can choose to care more about others than ourselves. And so, in the second sense, not just in this theoretical sense, but in, in and I'll be specific here, in a Christian sense, it is arguable, at least, and, in, and I will say it's in the ballpark for sure, but it is arguable, at least, to say that Christianity, and I mean by this term, Christianity, a practice, the transformative lifestyle, right, in its effect, the way we live it out, Christianity is altruism in a person. That is, Messiah is the pure altruist. He, for no selfish reason whatsoever, gives himself to the people who literally crucify him on their way to finding out that he really is their savior. That's messianic, right? So Christianity is imitating him. Becoming those who care for others, even at our own expense. And this is what Paul is doing when he's telling the Philippians how to be Christians. So if you found your consolation in Christ, he says, this is in Philippians 2, if you found your comfort in love, if you found fellowship in the Spirit, if you found affection and mercy in the things that Christ has given you, then fulfill my joy to be like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, then let nothing, and this is the altruistic part, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but instead, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others altruism. Let's invite it back in.
1: Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at berrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.